I don't know, said the driver. I just bring it up. We cursed and began unloading the ammo as fast as possible. We had expected the water to be in several five-gallon cans, each of which weighed a little more than 40 pounds. We worked as rapidly as possible, but then we heard that inevitable and deadly <laughs> Three big mortar shells exploded, one after the other, not far from us. Uh-oh, the stuff's hit the fan now, groaned one of my buddies. Bear a hand, you guys, on the double, said our NCO. Look, you guys, I'm going to have to get this tractor the hell out of here. If it gets knocked out and it's my fault, the lieutenant will have my can in a crack, groaned the driver. We had no gripe with the driver, and we didn't blame him. The Amtrak drivers on Peleliu were praised by everyone for doing such a fine job. Their bravery and sense of responsibility were above question. We worked like beavers, as our NCO said to him, I'm sorry, old buddy, but if we don't get these supplies unloaded, it's our ass. Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your host, Dodd Abernathy, Jeff Copsetta, and Henry Sledge. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. And we are back for another episode. And this is episode 99. I've already said 199. I've already get ahead of myself. Episode 99. And uh, at the end of the podcast, we're going to make a, a brief uh, programming note. But more importantly, everyone is here with us tonight. We got Jeff Copsetta. We got Henry Sledge. We got Leighton Hughes. And uh, I'm going to give Henry the privilege to go into introducing Leighton to everybody. But first and foremost, how are we all doing tonight? We're doing good. I'm doing good. Jeff, you doing good? Hey, you know me. Every day is outstanding. <laughs> and Leighton, how, how are things over there? I know, first and foremost, thank you for getting up so darn early to join us on the show here. Um, so kudos to you for that. But how's everything else going on over in, in your neck of the world? Yeah, good. Um, it's very early. Um, but yeah, excited to be on you. Uh, Henry's spoken a lot about you guys uh, since he first joined you. So it's quite bizarre having been watching you on uh, YouTube when I've been working, you know, or listening to you guys to actually being on you now and, and in conversation. So yeah, it's quite bizarre, but very cool. Well, Leighton is the producer of We Happy Few 506, and he's, he's a really good friend of mine. And I just wanted to give him the chance to to kind of be front and center as our featured guest tonight because i know we happy few 506 you do yeoman's work which are always in the background oh thank you Tom. i appreciate that yeah it's it's, it's good work it is having you know i think it's quite a privilege being part of that team you know it it, it came out of nothing and it's turned into something big to a yeah. point where we're now Looking at being in Bass, host being host, asked to host an event in Bastogne next month. So, which has gone way beyond what I was expecting mm-hmm. when it first started. So, yeah, it's pretty insane. Real quick, That's if you don't great. mind me asking, um, how did how did the producing role? How did you get involved in producing of that um, that show? Um, so I did a thing online um, last year. I was on a Band of Brothers Facebook group behind the scenes called Band of Brothers Group. Sorry, Band of Brothers behind the scenes. Um, I was helping out with that, and I knew one of the actors. We had a, a mutual, we had a mutual friend, a fam- I had a, was a family friend, and he was the sound producer that one of the actors worked with. A guy called Joe May, who plays Ed Shames in Band of Brothers, 
And with lockdown, obviously things were very much new. No one knew what was going on. And I think just to keep myself occupied during lockdown, I started to think, well, Curry signings. So doing private signings with the actors from Band of Brothers and focusing on the really hard to get guys. Uh, got Joe. Joe agreed to do it. Um, and it's just snowball from the one for Joe. Did uh, the guy who played Peacock, David Nichol, did John the guy uh, Mark Ryan Jordan, who plays John Julian, and went along to a point where I ended up doing it with Matthew Leach. And I'd known Matt anyway. We'd met in Bastogne the year before, and he put some photos up on on Instagram about him doing a sign in, and and it just snowballed. People were asking him to do it again. And he reached out and goes, oh, I'd love to do it. I'd love to do it. Another one. Uh, maybe next time we do me film it where I get to talk to people. Um, and that was an idea. I thought, okay, yeah, okay, yeah. That's something we could try and do that. That's a bit of hard work, but okay. But when we first met, we, we started talking and, you know, we chat a lot, chat a lot of sports. And I'd send him a rugby shirt, a signed rugby shirt. And he, he raised the idea at the time about doing a podcast, a, you know, sort of Q&A podcast with fans. Sure. And it was just before lockdown happened. So that went, uh, when, when lockdown happened, that went off. And obviously fast forward a year, that got brought forward. Um, I raised it because I heard Matt on a reenactors podcast. And I thought he sounded fantastic. And I just watched uh, the Platoon documentary on Amazon Prime, Brothers in Arms. And I sort of gauge the idea, say, you know what, how about we do something like this? Watch this documentary um, with Paul Sanchez, who's, who's the director who plays the doc. And we, you know, do it as a, a, a live Zoom. So we mashing it all together. Initially wanted to keep it away from history, um, making it all about the production, uh, getting various actors on, relationships. And yeah, it sort of snowballed. So what initially we were doing the Jim, Jimmy Maggio and... Uh, Matthew Hickey, who plays O'Keefe, was going to be our first one, bringing those two back together. Uh, and Matt pulled one out of the hat and said, well, how about we do Shane Taylor, who plays Doc Rowe, and Lucy Jean, who plays Nurse Rennie. Mm -hmm. Never been done, never been seen. And start off with those two, really hook people in. Yeah, Not that, you know, Picante and O'Keefe wasn't going to hook people in. Ah, come on, O'Brien, watch the line. It's O'Keefe. Yeah. <laughs> It's so Keith. Um, he's brilliant. He's such a nice guy. Mm -hmm. He's become a really good friend of mine. Uh, Matthew Hickey is. And so, yeah, we did it with Shane Taylor and, and Lucy Jean. We had some of the guests come. We had the director come on from the Bastogne episode, uh, David Leland, Ben Kaplan, who plays Smokey Gordon, Doug Allen, who plays Alton Moore, come on. And it just snowballed. Next one, we had Dexter Fletcher, Mark Warren, Eric Borkreiter, Rick, Rick Warden, and it's just gone and gone and gone to a point of having Donnie Wahlberg on, Cudlitz, Scott nice. Bryan, Richard Spade Jr. It's been insane. It's been a hell of a ride. And obviously, we, I've always had a huge interest in the Pacific. Sure. And, you know, I love, uh, with you know, with the old breeds. I, I, I've got the book. I've now got about three copies of the book from the first edition to the paperback. Um, and I wanted to dip into the Pacific and doing a little bit of research. Obviously, come across Henry. And obviously, we reached out to Henry, and we did that, you know. And obviously, it's yeah. In a nutshell, yeah, that's what it is in the long and short. It's amazing how much production and productivity and new ideas actually got launched, rolled out, and succeeded during COVID. I mean, you hear this a lot with a lot of people who were like, "Well, we're locked down. 
I was working from home where I, you know, unfortunately a lot of people weren't able to work, but they were locked down. And, you know, there's a lot of people, myself included, and, and I know Jeff's the same way and Henry, there's a lot of creative people who have all these ideas and these things they want to do. But when you're on that nine to five grind, you're parenting or whatever, yep. and you're just, you get into that, that rut, if you will, or not even a rut per se, cause rut has a negative condensation, but you get into that, that cycle, that, that rhythm of life and you're just pumping along pumping along that you don't have time for those creative things and then all of a sudden when the whole world stops and you find yourself yeah. locked in a house for 24 hours a day you might break that drawing book out and open up those cray paws and those drawing pencils for the first time in 15 years and sit down and draw or paint or come up an idea for a podcast based on a, a fantastic show and boom next thing you know you're talking with donnie Wahlberg. <laughs> And a Henry yeah. Sledge. I, I give, look, and you know, Jeff, <clears throat> you and Don both know from when I first came to you guys, um, I was on hiatus from the whole World War II thing. Leighton is the guy that brought me back into it. Well, we want to thank you for that. Yeah. Oh, geez, Let me ask you, and, and maybe this would be an interesting question because um, I think you're only the second person I've had on this podcast from over on that side of the globe. And it may be because it happened in that area, the, the war impacted that area so greatly. But what was it or what age was it for you that the World War II bug really set in on you and, and took effect? Because obviously over here in America, it's it, it hits fewer people because we weren't impacted at, at such a great deal, at least for the younger generations. But um, what what was it for you? And is it more, you know, obviously for your, great, your grandparents and all that and their generations, they were greatly impacted, but... Do you think probably more more of your counterparts over there are affected by it even today more than let's say Americans are? Um, I don't know. It's, 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 I think if it, it's it's faded out a little bit, um, unless you've got a huge interest in it. From where I'm from, it's me and a couple of my friends are interested in it. I'm probably the more hardcore out of say the three of us out of X amount. Um, I think when we were kids, obviously we were chatting before the show, you know, Memphis Bell captivated me as a, as an eight year old. Sure. I think it might be eight or nine when I came out and obviously reading Robert Morgan's book, I was quite shocked to think, wait, 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 where's, where's Dennis? Where's, you know, where's Virgil? Where's, where's Rascal? Yeah. You know, you know what, what the hell's going on? Jeff broke um, that, killed that Santa Claus <laughs> for me too. Cause I never read the book. And so as far as I knew the Virgils and the Dennis's, they were the real cats, but no, Jeff killed that Santa Claus for me too. <laughs> I mean, hey, in all fairness, because I'm, I'm with you guys. Exactly. I mean, I I saw the uh, the William Wyler documentary long before I watched the movie. You know, I, I think I was, I don't know, probably you know, seven, eight years old. Like, like I said, when, when the Memphis Belle, the Warner Brothers uh, production came out. Um, but I just remember that, you know, my dad had it taped on a VHS, you know, from whatever, one of the local channels when it came on, the old documentary. And and yeah, same thing. I said, this is this is weird. So I knew Robert Morgan's name before I saw the Warner Brothers production, and it just really it blew my mind. Not just the difference in the nose art that you know they really changed the whole. They changed the girl. They changed you know the, the way the name was written, Memphis Bell. They they kind of changed the story a little bit on how they met. But when I had the opportunity to meet Colonel Morgan, that's the first thing I asked him. Why would you not? You know, why did you guys use different names? And and he said, look. It wasn't about us. It wasn't about Robert Morgan, Jim Brennis, and Chuck Layden. And, you know, it wasn't about those guys. It was about 
the plane. It was about 10 men. It was about that struggle. So he said they would, they wanted to be careful. They needed a name. They needed an airplane. They used the best one out there, of course. Um, but it was not about the individuals. So it made sense after, you know, hearing it from him because eight of the 10 crew and were still alive and, you know, were um, uh, part of the advisors for the film. And they all were in agreement with that. They didn't want their names used. I thought that was pretty impressive. I think that's a yeah. little bit of the, f- the bleed over from their generation, because as we've heard, you know, veterans and people who were alive that time say, when we got back to the war, no one quote unquote bragged about it. Cause we were all over there. It was a common experience yeah. we all had. And so here all these years later, they're like, it's not, once again, it's not about us. Everybody was over there serving their own part. So let's make a <clears throat> film using some generic names to represent everybody who was over there in this particular branch. And I think that's a, huge carryover from that generation. I think some of that could be greatly used in our current generations these days. Yeah. I think it was more of a shock that they weren't actually the first aircraft to do the 25 missions either. Right. I think they were the second either. I think it was Hell's Angels. Um, yeah. And, you know, there's a, there's a twist of irony there because actually the first bomber crewman to do 25 missions was Robert Morgan's co-pilot, Jim Brennan's. That's the most intriguing part. And that statistic did not come out until decades after. Uh, I would think he would have known. Um, so I'm curious if that was kind of more of a hush-hush, like, hey, you want to go home? All right, keep that to yourself, <laughs> you know. Uh, but, yeah, they uh, that there's a really good publication about everything Memphis Bell. Uh, <clears throat> I've got it on the, on the shelf behind me. Uh, biography of a B-17 Flying Fortress, where they go into that, where – they look at all the the records because uh, you know of course robert morgan and some of his crew you know he had a kind of a core group the gunners would come and go a radio operator would come and go uh baltar gunner things like that but typically your pilot and um, navigator bombardier and a lot of times his tail gunner johnny quinlan was kind of a good friend so that was kind of his core group and they would fill in from there uh so he would fly all the airplanes i think he flew a couple missions in yankee doodle or one or the other, the Jersey Yang, stuff like that. Um, but so even Morgan had more than 25 missions by the time, you know, that the, the crew, the, the Memphis Bell did. Uh, but Jim Varenas actually uh, was only his co-pilot for the first few missions and went off. He was a captain as well. So he went off, got his own uh, B-17 and did his and flew 25 missions for Robert Morgan. Did. And uh, there was something that William Wyler, there was some enigma about the Memphis Bell and, and, and Don, you can pitch this, you know, that, you know, we did a whole episode on what's the scuttlebutt about the Memphis Bell. So I don't want to take too much time away, but um, yeah, it's interesting the way history just kind of works itself out and, and it works. It, they don't, they didn't have to be the first, they didn't have to have any actual historical superlative, but whatever it was, it worked. And it got guys like us talking about it 75 years later. And I think, well, I think the other normal, the interesting about that movie and when that theatrical version was released, I think it had been a long time since there was a movie on that scale about that particular subject matter. Obviously, through the 80s and 90s, it was a lot of Vietnam movies and you had some, you know, World War II infantry based movies. But what was another large scale Hollywood theatrical release about Army Air Corps before that movie came out? Would it go all the way back to 12 o'clock? Probably. 12 o'clock yeah, yeah. Um, 
I don't think it goes quite that far back. Steve McQueen did one after, I think, 12 o'clock high. Um, uh, when did Tuskegee Airmen come out? Oh, that was the 70s, wasn't it? Was that the 70s? Tuskegee um, Airmen, was it that far back? Was that with Lawrence I Fishburne? Thought, yeah, Lawrence Fishburne and Cuba Gooding. I don't think it goes quite that far, but it could. But, Don, you're right. That, that's a good point. Um, it, either way, it had been a while. <laughs> the one that actually... fish burned. Go ahead. I was going to say you mentioned Cuba Gooding Jr. There, I think. I think I was really disappointed with his one because I was an outstanding cast. What was that? Tails. That was Red Wings. What? Well, yeah, Red Tails. No, well, Absolutely. outstanding Cuba cast. Cuba Gooding was in both. Cuba Gooding oh, was, was in. He? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 2004. Uh, at least that's oh. what the date on the DVD. No, I'm no. That's hold on. I'm looking at the Amazon. I'm trying to find the IMDb on it. Go ahead. Yeah, he was one of the young pilots in Tuskegee Airmen, and he plays, I think, a major in in Red Tails. That's what. Yeah, Red Tails was. Um, I was really disappointed with that. I was really excited. Yeah, um, really, here. really excited, and just felt badly acted, and too many people <laughs> survive. Things like Young yeah. Snap, he gets shot down over um, Italy, and he still makes it back. Nineteen ninety five was when it came out. What's that? 1995 was the original. Oh, oh. So yeah. After Memphis Bell, yeah. So let's see. Stars uh, Lawrence Fishburne, as you guys said. Alan Payne, Malcolm Jamal Warner. Uh, let me expand here. Malcolm Jamal oh. Warner was from Cosby Show, was he not? Uh-huh. Uh, let's see. Um, Andre, let's see. Q, yep, Cuba Gooding Jr. played Billy Roberts. Uh, Mackay Pfeiffer, you guys probably know him from Six, Mi uh, Six Mile. Uh, do, 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 do. I'm seeing if there's any other recognition. Memphis Bill was what, 92, 91? Uh, 90, I think. 90. Uh, yeah, 90, yeah. I think, I think I possibly catch 22 then, even before Memphis Bell, which was. I just restarted watching that the other day. I've seen, I saw the very first version of that at a World War II reenactment on a side of somebody's trailer, and I'm watching it for the first time. I had no advanced knowledge of this movie. I'm like, yeah, they're on a lot of drugs when they did this movie. And then, interestingly enough, the Amazon Prime remake with George Clooney, I almost liked it better because they kind of took a lot of the esoteric nonsense out of it and made it a little more more fun. Um, I, I, just for fun, while editing video, I started watching the original version the other day. But that's, that's, that's definitely an uh, interesting flick. Yeah, I watched I think I'd re I watched it when it came out. Um. And then we watched it probably a few months ago, and I thought, you know, I want to watch the old one. Memphis Bell, 1990. Oh, wow. Obviously, fun fact, you know, obviously, Matthew Modine, I think that's quite nice, it's quite weird, but quite nice, is obviously Memphis Bell, based at Bassenborn, and he filmed Full Metal Jacket. That was filmed at Bassenborn. Nice. Really? Years before, yeah. So sort of nice little, that was quite a nice little thing. Yep, Sean Austin, Billy Zane. I keep forgetting Billy Zane was in that. That was the movie that really introduced Steals the show. Yeah, but you know who stood out to me from that movie because obviously he was a huge pianist and a huge performer oh, was Harry, Harry Connick Jr. And that was yeah. like that was like the movie that broke his that brought him in the lexicon of a Don a young Don. I, I think I saw that movie alone at the theater because back in the day we would do this thing where we'd go to the movies every weekend. But none of us wanted, me and my siblings, none of us wanted to see the same movie. So my sister and brother would go see a movie by themselves. And I, so I went and saw Memphis Bell by myself. I think I saw Fletch by myself. There's a handful of movies I, I remember. Oh, I, I sat in a movie theater by myself in middle school watching that. So, yeah, Memphis Bell was one of them. 
outstanding cats. I think, you know, was it a young Eric Stoltz? Eric Stoltz, yep. Tate Coors, Donovan, you know. D.B. Sweeney, mm-hmm. um, Sean Aston, as we said, Harry Connie Jr., Reed Diamond. Um, who else do we recognize in here? Uh, Courtney Gaines. John Lithgow. Yeah, oh, yeah, John, John Lithgow. Lithgow. Yeah. There's always a religious one. <laughs> 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 yeah, but it looks like, you know, that that is an interesting uh, thought game is, you know, air core base movies that came out in the 90s and how many there were. I probably are- would, would echo what Jeff said. I, I go back to when I was a kid. Of course, I'm, I'm a lot older than you guys, as yeah. Jeff reminded me earlier. But uh, current events. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that old, Jeff. But no, going back in, in the Wilder, the Wilder footage, you know, I mean, I, I remember seeing that in documentaries and stuff long before I ever saw Memphis Bell. Yeah. Yeah, um, we discovered the documentary way after way after um, you know, it was before the age of the internet. So reading up on the Memphis Bell, you know. Flipping heck, you know, I c- couldn't navigate a library either. So I had the TV and then that got me sucked right in, in into absolutely adoring the B-17. Every time I'd see it, I'd go to an air show. We've got the only flying B-17 in the UK, uh, Sally B. I saw that there. That was amazing. It was phenomenal to see. I actually went inside it a few years ago, which was just incredible. You, you know, and then I was just hooked into World War II films from there. Then from then, you know, came the Battle of Britain. Battle of the Bulge, which is looking back now, is probably not that great. Uh, you know, and I went then from, I heard you guys talking about it on last week's one, you had Saving Private Ryan and you had Thin Red Line. And I actually, I think, you know, what Don was saying is, is quite confusing. But I still I'm good at that. I'm, I'm good at confusing. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff's about to leave us. <laughs> Jeff's like, I've, I've had it up to here with Thin Red Line. No, basically what I was saying on that was, if you don't know anything about Guadalcanal and you watch that mm. movie, you'll be thoroughly bored with it. But once you yeah. do some research, you'll me, understand it a little bit. Let me throw this out. So you mentioned Battle of Britain. Um, it'd be cool if they do a remake of that. Oh, they're outstanding. I think they were at one point, weren't they? I think Tom Cruise was going to be a... Were they? A, I think they were. I remember reading it a while back. Yeah, I think he was going to star in it, yeah. With well, a young Michael Caine well, in the now, original... Now's the um, time to do it because, as we know, Hollywood, like the only thing they're putting out is existing licensed products. And so now would be a great time to, to reboot some of those movies that, yeah. you know, could have benefited from um, better technology when it comes to special oh, effects. Oh, yeah. The downside if they redo is, Battle of Britain, that'd be great. The downside is, is we don't have availability to access to the plethora of planes that they had back then because all <clears> that stuff was just sitting yeah. around and now it's been Ooh. scrapped. I, I did an air show a few years ago. Um, I went to an air show, Duxford. It was the, I think it was Battle of Britain air show. And they had about, they had quite a few Spitfires there. They got up in the air, they had quite a few Spitfires. So I think they're all right. For, yeah, I think there's, I don't know, I can't remember how many, but it was a large amount at one point they'd had flying in the UK. I think, yeah, they probably need a few German ones. But yeah, it, it's, it'd be amazing to re-see, uh, to, sorry, to re-watch, sorry. I'd love to see a, a great one on Bomber Command. I think there's, I think that's massively missing since Dambusters. I don't think there's been any. Excuse me if I'm wrong. Uh, I think I might, I might be wrong on this one, but so, yeah, got Dambusters way back in the '60s, '50s, but there hasn't been really anything 
of significance since. I think I mentioned to Henry a while back. Oh, have you seen this on Amazon Prime? I think it's called Lancaster Skies. Dam Busters, 1955, believe it or not. Leighton, how many? Isn't there only one flyable Lancaster now? I think in the UK, yeah, the, the Battle of Britain Memorial flight, which is based up in, I want to say, uh, north of England or near the north anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I haven't, I've seen it fly in. I'd love it. It's, it's based on a, an RAF base, but I was never based there myself, so I couldn't pop in and have a look. Um, and it was always too far to go and visit. Uh, but I'd love to go and see it. I'd love to go and touch touch that aircraft or at least yeah. get up and close to it yeah i'd absolutely love to but it's so far away it's it's too far for a little bit of a jolly as jeff can attest to since he works at a um a air air corps air force plane museum it's one thing to see you know them sitting on the runways but when you hear that engine noise or hear the flyover and you actually get the feel and hear the the telltale sign of those aircraft it just brings everything to life and it's just it just changes the whole dynamic of being around those planes. It's just insane. Well, Leighton, I'll, I'll tell you this much. I did have the opportunity to go in the the uh, the B-17 they used for the Memphis Bell, which I think was Sally B, correct? That's the actual, that's the same I, yeah. aircraft. I've had a, a few different things, but I've, yeah, because it's, it's I, yeah, got Memphis Bell so. on the side of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, of course, but it was painted up as the Memphis Bell when they were touring it around in the 90s. You know, at air shows, I did get to go inside of that one, and I've been inside of 909. Uh, but after that, uh, visiting the actual Memphis Bell when it was still in Memphis oh, wow. uh, on Mud Island under that kind of that white canopy area, it was just deteriorating under there. But, you know, there's there's an old guy that just kind of sits there, oh, signing the book, and he'll answer questions, you know. And my dad and I struck up a conversation with him, and, and this was after we had met Colonel Morgan at the Mid-Atlantic Air Show there, and Boy, that guy was like, he kind of looked around like this. Okay, boys, going under the chain. He lifted it up for us. Now, we couldn't go inside, of course, but, boy, I got to touch a lot of that airplane. I just made sure I was just, yep, yep, yep. My hand's been on the ball turret. Yep, yep. <laughs> you know, as I went through, uh, probably shouldn't admit to that, but uh, it's totally restored now. It doesn't matter. Um, you know, of course, now that's sitting up in Ohio, I don't know if I'll ever get to, to go see it again, but, you know, that's the thing. that. We we got to keep this stuff alive, and I wanted to make sure that Leighton, that we you know express that to you uh, before we uh, before we got too off topic is you know appreciate what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so nice to see that there's guys like like Don and Henry and myself all over the world, yeah. you know. And, and and I think Don, you you really uh, you mentioned something that I, that I was thinking before we went live is it seems like you know if you want good Jeep parts, you know, I've got a 42 GPW. You kind of got to go to England to go. Yeah, right. Know? That's where things are. <laughs> um, or, you know, what's the best air show in the world to see World War II aircraft? Probably Duxford. <laughs> oh, really? Uh, that's what I've heard. I mean, uh, well, oh, wow. uh, Kalamazoo was up there, I think. Mm-hmm. But a, a lot of the uh, the aircraft books that I have that show the flying restored World War II, you see they're at the Duxford Air Museum. You know, uh, there's probably more Shermans in, in Bovington than there is anywhere else in the U.S. Yeah, I think because they I just left so much of that stuff over there. You know, it's one of those things because, you know, and like Don said, it, it impacted that part of the world in a much different way than it impacted us here. We, you know, our boys came home and, you know, threw half the stuff away and gave the other stuff to their kids for Halloween costumes to get ruined. And we got a bunch of overpriced artifacts left in an antique shop or sometimes you're lucky at an estate sale. 
you know, we didn't have that, um, that sense of, uh, I guess being sentimental about things. Um, you know, like I think a lot of the European nations are, and even the, the Australians, I know the Australians in fighting the Japanese were, they specifically had, uh, an effort put forth during the war as they were capturing things to say, okay, we already have one of these push that back to the rear, uh, to restore and put on display. It was part of, you know, the thought process that this is not always going to be here. We're going to want to tell this story. And that was conscious even during the fight. Whereas, you know, though the war's over. Okay, great. Push every one of these Hellcats off the edge of the aircraft. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, that's just kind of how it was like, Oh, okay, great. We don't need anymore. Throw it away. Turn that battleship to paper clips. Um, mm. so it, it's really neat to see, you know, like I said, from your perspective on that side of the Atlantic, um, keeping it alive and, and doing exactly like what you do. Yeah. It's, I think <clears throat> band of brothers it definitely cap re reignited something in me and in getting into history. Cause I was, I think I was 20 when it came out and I think, you know, being into world war ii history probably wasn't at the forefront of my mind at the time and then watching that series from episode one with a running curry he just absolutely captivated me he got ross from friends mm-hmm. leading the charge Hi, and, and, <clears throat> you know i remember seeing matt on me at the time and i'd only seen matt previously in a tv show on a kids channel about a football team a soccer team um, where he's the manager of this uh, five-a-side soccer team. And then you see, you know, all these people going through, you know, young Tom Hardy, Fassbender, um, Tim Matthews. I'd, I'd seen Tim Matthews in a, in a comedy show called Chef with a chap called Lenny Henry. Uh, yeah, it was just incredible, you know, seeing that. It was just absolutely pulled me in. You know, I, I didn't read the book for probably another two years, and that sent me on another journey then. Because, um, again, I wasn't into reading, and I'd read a book called Bravo Two Zero. When I first joined the Air Force, and again that sent me on just reading on military history, and I think that's all I read. A few biographies of sports people, but it's predominantly military. Um, and then the Pacific, and my brother went to Pearl Harbor not not long after the Pacific had come out, and he brought back Henry's father's book, and I absolutely devoured it. Absolutely devoured it, and I've read that three or four times, that copy three or four times. And again, that said, you know, that, you know, I read Helmet for My Pillow. I read um, Red Blood, Black Sands. I was in the Falklands when I read that. Um, I'd seen it. It was, it was a new edition coming out on, on, on Amazon, I believe, or a edition on, on Amazon. I bought that. I got that sent to the Falkland Islands to read that. Um, yeah, it just sent me. It's, I think that's what, you know, TV shows are great. You know, I, know, I think Band of Brothers can come across sometimes that Easy Company won the war because it feels like it does show that. Even as a young age, I thought, you know, it shows that it felt like that they won the war all by themselves where they're only a very small cog, mm. but it just, it, it, it captured people to, to learn history. Um, and I've been to Normandy when the, the guys from Band of Brothers have been there and, and it's, it's hundreds of people there just to meet these guys. And they've got such a passion for, for knowing anything, you know, a lot of things. And I think it's a great, it's a great platform for, for getting people interested. Um, and I'm really looking forward to Masters of the Year now because I think it's going it's to capture a lot more. Yeah, we've been waiting that one forever. Yeah, it's going to be good. I mean, I, I remember coming, you know, they, were, they, they announced it a few years back. Um, 
and a friend of mine sent me a picture. I think it was called it was, it, it, it like a running title called the Eighth Air Force, um, and it was like a, the image was of a, you know the the, the, the first um, the aircraft just looked like it was in a bit of a nosedive coming down, and I thought that looks you know even from that I thought oh I can't wait for this, and, and then obviously yeah Masters of the Air. I read the book a few years ago, and I thought this is amazing. It was it's, it was an incredible book. And I think that's pulled me back into reading about the eighth again. So again, I'm trying to broaden my horizons now with what I read. Um, and yeah, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I've, I've, I've seen the set. Well, I've seen the set I, I've from a distance or, or from the from the wire because I do a military reserve duty now. And, and, and the set is just down the road. And, and when I was able to go down, especially in the summer, just, just to see what I can see, just go wow. for a drive. And, and, you know, stick my head in the fence and you see two, you know, full-size replica B-17s there. Just looks amazing. It just, even from a distance, it looks amazing. Two things I want to touch on before I forget. Uh, Jeff reminded me, one, you're, we were talking about how a lot of artifacts got left there and then obviously we dumped a lot of them in the ocean. I saw a TikTok the other day of an underwater diver and she found probably seven pallets of, the Harley shovel heads that we use in war, just sitting at like, look like they're brand new, all just side by side on these pallets, just rotten away. It's like, it's so painful when you see those footages of the old Jeeps underwater, the Harley Davidson motorcycles or just all the equipment. They just, eh, it costs too much to take back. Let's just dump it in the ocean. And then two, um, when it comes to band of brothers, that just, the thing I, one of the things I enjoy doing, cause you're talking about, you know, a lot of the actors that, were you know you seen in some small time shows over there and then they got picked up for band of brothers i love doing that too i love watching newer stuff saying all oh, that i know him from band of brothers or he got his start in band of brothers and it really goes to show the level of quality the casting agency they had brought on because obviously yes a band of brothers was huge but if your acting chops weren't that good there's a lot of guys who were in that show we never heard of again, but there was a ton of them that went on to do many of things because the quality of the acting skills that their casting agencies found, it, it just it always amazed me how many guys from that series went on to do many, many, many more projects. It's amazing. It always just floors me. Yeah, I think Fassbender for me, I think he plays, yeah, plays uh, Christensen in, in band. And I, even at the time, I thought there's something about him. Um, he was very, I didn't, you know, he didn't stand out in the sense that he's, you know, his performances were, were breathtaking, but it was just something about him at the time. And lo and behold, you know, he's, he's a megastar now, Fastbender is. Um, Jimmy Fallon, even Jimmy Fallon popping mm-hmm. up as a Lieutenant yeah. Rice. And Jimmy Fallon um, being Jimmy Fallon, he must laugh through his lines because that's what he does um you guys had on i saw one of your early kind of like your preview episodes to get people to go watch them uh the the gentleman who and forgive me for not remembering his name but the gentleman who played johnny martin he went on to do a lot of you know supporting roles in a lot of movies after that is that dexter fletcher it's dexter fletcher yeah oh i can't remember now off the top of my head but I, there's a couple like action f- movies where he played like henchmen and the gangs and like supporting roles with a lot of lines like oh that's john oh johnny martin from banner brothers and i i remember seeing him in a lot of stuff i remember seeing yeah yeah i think i'm thinking of kick-ass there yeah kick-ass um, he, was when in. he was in kick-ass and i think oh, it's uh it's, it's i will wasn't a very yeah. young dexter fletcher in go back to 1985 the bounty wasn't he in that i think he was 
He had he a very a, small he a, part. He was a child actor because he was in Bugsy Malone as well, I want to say. Okay. I want to say he was in, yeah, Bugsy Malone as well. I'll have to double check that on IMDb. Um, but then he was in a thing called Press Gang. I remember that as a kid in the 90s, um, which is a, yeah, a kids' TV show in the UK. And obviously he's gone on now to direct Rocket Man. I think he took over the directing from Bohemian Rhapsody as well, which obviously had Rami Malek and Joe Mazzella mm. from the Pacific. And now he's direct. He's just directed a few episodes on the, the Godfather prequel or the, the, the series about the Godfather. Hmm. And hmm. he's just done a few episodes on that, which has got, again, I think there's a few Band of Brothers guys in there. I think Kirk Acevedo's in it, Jimmy Maggio and Ross McCall are popping up on that as well. Um, Neil McDonough, he, we had him on, and he when he does his film projects, he, he said to, he said to um, during, during, during our show, he mentioned about how he always tries and gets a member of band in his productions as well. You always saw in his last one, which was a bit of a Western, he had Jimmy Maggio in it. Uh, so he always tries and does that with every project that he does as well, that he's involved with where he gets to control it. So I think there's definitely, there's, there's certainly a brotherhood there. I think it's a huge, I think that's brilliant. And there's a passion, I think as well, which is really good. I think you don't see that with many actors. Um, It's a passion to keep the memory alive with, I think with a lot of them. And I think it's, it's brilliant. I think a show to do, have an effect like that, on on actors who can just brush it aside once they've finished, you know, they've got their paycheck, but mm-hmm. they still continue to do it twenty years later, yeah, and probably beyond. I think I think it's a testament to, to the to 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 where you know to not necessarily the story, but to to the impact of the show that they're willing to carry on doing this for the rest of their lives. I got to ask you, and for those of you listening to the Audible format, I apologize. You're going to watch the YouTube video. The helmet over your shoulder, is that reproduction or is that from the set? The, uh, oh, that one. Yes. That is from the set. Beautiful. Um, yeah, that's, you don't see it. I, I think I was quite lucky with that, uh, buying it online. It'd been on for a little while and I was sniffing around it. Um, but I sort of wasn't sure whether to pull the trigger on buying it. I bought it and it's named to Spears. <clears throat> um, it's named, obviously, with with the props of Band of Brothers, they've obviously got, got you know got the names written in the side of it, so mm-hmm. they know who it belongs to. And that's named to Spears. But in episode one, we don't see Spears in episode one. So, right. Um, so whether he's just he's, he was there, but it just wasn't shown, or episode one was actually completely refilmed. I don't know if anyone knew that. No. Um, there was actually there was there is an earlier version of episode one of Band of Brothers, but Spielberg saw it, wasn't impressed, and said, "Nope, shit, can it? Redo it." I never so knew that. Oh, yeah. Um, the original script, I've got um, the episode one script, and it's a completely different script. Wow. Really? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I'll have to send you guys a copy. It's a completely Please do. difference. It's, 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 it's completely different. They talk about, you know, the drumming out. There wasn't so much brotherhood. There was, they, they, you know, they cover Dietrich's death, the guy whose um, parachute didn't open. Mm-hmm. They cover out the drumming out as well of, um, they mention it in the book. The, you know, it talks about that as well. Yeah, it's, it's completely different. And yeah, the T-shirts from set is from production as well. And there's dog tags. Um, Matthew Hickey, who plays O'Keefe, um, nice. 
gave me his dog tags as a as a gift of as, as a thank you um, earlier this year as well. Yeah, I'm not doing credit for our audience. The helmet we're referring to is one of the football-style um, training helmets that they wore at boot camp, and so he actually has one over his his right shoulder. Speaking of helmets, we're going to take a real quick break just because last week um, we mentioned the what I referred to as the M1 Correspondent Helmet, and I actually got a listener who reached out to us on our Facebook page. Technically, that is the T14 Photographer's Helmet. And uh, I got this letter sent to us on our Facebook, actually through the email, info, a um, mail call. That's mail call at WTSPWorldWar2.com. Hi, Don. Hope all is well. On occasion, my wife joins me at reenactment displays, normally as a nurse. After watching a documentary on Lee Miller and knowing her lo- love for photography in late 2019, I purchased some World War II photography equipment. And as a Christmas gift for her and myself, while hunting for his... As much information as possible, I came across the T-14 helmet and decided we had to have one. After acquiring two damaged non-World War II-based M1 helmets, um, I was lack, um, helmets, all I was lacking was the skill to make one. Luckily for me, a fellow reenactor had the skills required, so I provided him with as many reference pictures as I could, and within a few days, Brendan had turned two damaged M1 helmets into one T-14 helmet. I installed all the new harnesses and painted the helmet, and it looks fantastic. Uh, we haven't had as many events in 2019, and those that we have had with my wife wasn't able to attend, so I haven't had much chance to have her wear it. With luck, we'll get back next year. And he sent me a link to um, a page. It is um, the 166 Signal Photography Company's website. And it says, the T-14 Photographer's Helmet. If you've ever held a Bell & Howell IMO to your eye while wearing an M1 helmet, you've probably experienced the same difficulty the U.S. Army Signal Corps cameramen did during World War II. The brim of the helmet prevents the camera from sitting properly against the eye, and unless you move it to a certain angle, the helmet is in the way. Uh, the problems of the operating of the camera with the standard helmet were noted by photographers in the field, causing Army um, pictorial staff to come up with a special design that would not only work with certain equipment, but provide maximum protection for the user. Now he actually on this webpage shows the military typed up creation of this helmet, but the, it's too light for me to read in real time. Um, but it does say by June 25th reports of equipment and suggestions from France indicated that the standard army helmet cannot be worn by single core cameramen while operating some equipment. The Army's pictorial service staff had developed a visor-type helmet which could be produced by taking out a section of the standard M1 helmet and attaching the movable visor, which the cameraman could place um, over the eyepiece of his camera. Permission was secured from G4, European Theater of Operations, um, and Chief of Ordnance to provide 100 special helmets, and delivery was made to the field units in approximately one week from June 25th. So it looks like about a hundred of these things were made in real life, and uh, basically what the guys do now to make re- reproductions, they just get out a grinder, they cut the bill off, and they get another one. And much like we said last week, it almost looks like a knight's helmet, and they just rip it on a side and they make a visor. And I'll post the pictures he included. He sent me some real nice photos, um, and I'll post on the website. But yeah, he has a real nice um, signal core impression that he does at Living History events. So I just wanted to give a shout out. To uh, Chris, thank you so much, Chris, for uh, contributing and listening to the podcast. And if you guys want to send us any information, questions, or show ideas, please email us 
at mailcall at wtspworldwar2.com. And don't be confused like Henry if you go to wtspworldwar2.com and think it looks different because I did change it a while back, but it has been a while and it is up to date. And while you are there, please click on that Patreon link, sign up. It's only a dollar a month. If you really, really like us, you can sign up for the $7.50 a month plan and after month two, I will send you a free t-shirt of your liking. And enough of all the plugs and back to the show. Thank you, guys. Is there... Is there any particular like World War II artifact that you collect that um, may be weird to people or you can't even explain to yourself, Linton, that you just you have to have? I'd love to have a focus, a specific focus. Um, this is going to sound bizarre. Um, I was looking at B-17 parts. They were selling some online as one. That's the, I wouldn't say that's the weirdest thing. Um, but I, 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 you know, I, I want to be able to display them as well. So I want something that can look quite nice and I can get away with it. Mm-hmm. I started looking at um, Lancaster bomber um, compasses. The beautiful, they come in sure. an incredibly beautiful box. Um, and I did have one, and I was eyeing one up on uh, Facebook Marketplace and comparing it to eBay. Uh, some of the eBay prices, it, it was an absolute bargain. And I just, I just held out too long on that one. But I'd say if there's one, I, something I do want. Um, not Nazi, but I'd say a Hitler youth knife. Uh, yeah. They look absolutely, this, the, the design is absolutely stunning. Um, and I've, I've been to a few military shows here in the UK, uh, Malvern, uh, a few times and th- they are just, they are stunning to look at. Um, and the history behind them as well is sort of really interesting. But the price tag, I can't get away with it. As Jeff pointed um, out, um, antiques are so expensive. There is a great antique store from here, here from me, and uh, most of the booths are people who's getting rid of their collections, their parents' collection. And there's like three rows of just German stuff. But as you just said, the price point is just ridiculous on some of that stuff. Knives, badges, armbands, all of it. And you're like, I would like, I, I pulled the trigger on one. And it's a head badge off of um, like the bicycle that the uh, the German police rode. It's just that it's like the only thing I can afford. It was just the and it has all the German writing and the and the swastika on it. But it was like literally the head badge off the the neck post of a bicycle. It's like the only uh. thing. I, only other than some coins, it's the only thing I have that's not Allied related. Yeah, do you know what? I show you think now. I'll show you guys think now. You're just talking about that. Yeah, I've picked up some coins. Um, I thought they're going to be bigger. Yeah, they're small. Um, when, I, when I bought them, they're really small. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it cost me a few pounds. Um, I got those. And I picked, again, I went to a, a military show last year. And I'd seen it at a military show. And obviously, there's this Third Reich sellers. Um, and they had, like, obviously, table of all sorts. And I was looking at the porcelain because I, oh, it's quite cheap. Um, and I was looking at what they had and they, there's a few books they had as well. And they had, but it was like, we call them sticker albums, Panini sticker albums. We put stickers in your football stickers of soccer players. Sure. Um, and this book looked like that, but it was a, a third Reich version. Wow. And, and I, was, I was looking at that and I thought, Oh, that looks quite nice. And a, f- a friend of mine, Lewis was, you know, I asked, I asked for the price. Um, and a mate pulled me away who was with me said, don't buy that. I'll say I've got one. I'll sell it to you for cheaper, nice. and it's it's in a lot better condition. And what it is, I'll, I'll put it to you now and show you guys. Actually, um, where is it? It's um, hope we don't get kicked off YouTube for this. That's all right. Um, they, wow. So, so 
I've tried to find out information about this. Is there is there is an article that came with this um, from back in two thousand and nine? The Hitler, the Hitler, the Hitler um, swastikas. So it talks about. I'll have to send you guys a copy. I'll have to scan it and send sure. it to you guys to put on. Um, or just for, just for you to read. So there's an article because it went up for auction, and it's named to someone. It's got somebody's name in here called uh, Arthur Shippers. Um, and if I can. I don't know how to describe if I can, but it's just, I, I don't, it seems like, you know, people back, you know, in the thirties collected stickers or cards and they just glued them in. Yeah. They had no and, forethought. And, um, obviously photos of the big gang. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it's, I'll have to send you guys more photos of it. And it's, a, I think it's not not nazi um just really interesting because the history the history about it was fascinating well not only that but i was going to say i don't collect a whole lot of german stuff but like i have a few stamps i have a few coins and i have that that bike head stock stamp but the reason i think it's kind of important to have one or two items just with either if it's just a picture of the asshole on it or not just so when someone comes over they see it and then like any any kind of thought that that was so long ago goes away because now they see a coin. Here's a coin with Hitler's face on it. Here's a stamp off an envelope with Hitler's face on it. It just it makes them realize how not so long ago this actually was. And I and I also think it'd be more important for the future for our kids and our grandkids to kind of evidence. Hey, this shit did happen. Here's a stamp with the asshole's face on it. You know what I mean? So yeah, I'm not so I don't have a whole bunch of it, but I have a few items just to kind of wake people up when they're looking through my stuff. Like, Oh, Oh wow. So this stuff was really around. Yeah, it, it was. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine, I used to work with him in my, in my old reserve squadron, um, old boy, his father worked for Rolls Royce and they took, um, a car across Europe. And they met him. His grandfather had met him back in, in, in I want to say, the 30s. And he's got footage. He's got, um, he's got sorry, footage, so he's got film that wow. hasn't been developed, that he wants to get developed. Obviously, he can't take it to Tesco's or the local supermarket. Yeah, to get no. That's, you have to um, find I'll have to it. reach out to see if he's had it done recently because it's been a while since you spoke about it. But he's probably got some photos that have never, ever been seen before of Hitler and his yeah. cronies. Um and I think he said he's got his autograph as well, um, that he'd signed this Rolls-Royce plaque that his grandfather, I think his grandfather or father had had when they were going around and Hitler had signed it. But yeah, he, he's, he's telling us about that. I think it was last year when I was with him and he was asking me where he, where, where he could get his photos developed as well. But I didn't know. I don't want to send him to the local supermarket. No, something like, something like that, you would almost have to like find someone who develops film I mean, not. I mean, somebody's been doing it like years. I mean, like an old guy, an old dude who's who has like hundreds of thousands of hours under his belt. That way, you know that it's going to survive, and they'll know how to properly do it. Because, I mean, I used to develop black and white film in high school, but I couldn't imagine trying to develop eighty-year-old film mm-hmm. and do it safely. Um, here's a fun little conversation. Um, I was at an event two weekends ago. And someone brought the question. This would be an interesting question for everybody. If money wasn't an issue, let's say you won the lottery or whatever, money's not an issue, you have the ability to obtain any firearms license that would require you to wherever you live, if you could have one firearm from the period, what would be your dream firearm to get? We'll start with you, Jeff. Oh, that's easy. Uh, I was I was a 50 cal gunner in the Army, so it'd be the Ma Deuce. <laughs> <laughs> 
Jeff? I mean, uh, Henry? I would want a Thompson like my dad carried on Okinawa. Leighton? Uh, the M- <clears throat> Sorry, the M1. Oh, I was going to look over my shoulder. Mine's usually in here. You know, I, I went to Henry route and we were sitting on a campfire and I said, oh, I would get me a fully automatic Thompson. And then I wandered off to relieve myself in the bushes. And I had a thought, no, you know what I would get? And it's not a very great gun, but they're iconic. And for some reason, I've just always wanted one, a PPSH. <laughs> I mean, Thompson's are super cool. I've had, I've, I've been privileged enough to have, I've been around plenty of them and shot them at reenactments, but a PPSH, I think, would be so damn cool to actually have a firing one that was not chopped up in a million pieces. The the uh, Russian Burke gun. I have fired gun. a real one. It is that they are stellar. To, they are a lot of fun. <laughs> they are to me more fun than firing a, a full auto Thompson. What What was the model Absolutely. that was similar to the PPSH? Um, oh, I can't remember. I was at an event. And a guy had one. It looked like the PPSH, but it was a different model, and he he had one. That was it was as close as I got into a real one. And I was super happy to see that, but I would love to just get my hands on a PPSH. And I know they're not the greatest, but Jeff has shot one. And yeah, but yeah, yeah, uh, I've got a I've got a buddy that owns one. The one I shot uh, was this was years ago at a full auto day, and uh, it was a friend of my friend, <laughs> and I was not allowed to even know exactly where we were at, but we brought. The guy that I knew, we brought his Humvee, and he actually had a captured. Uh, it was a Russian anti-tank gun that the Japanese had taken, and then the Americans had taken it from the Japanese. So he brought that out there, and we had a 50 caliber on top of the Humvee, and and then it was about 20 guys out there, and it was just all these full auto, you know, anything you could think of laying out there. And then that and, distinctive uh, sound of that PPSH ripping off. Man, yeah, I've got a video of me shooting it somewhere. I'd have to try to dig up, but it, it was it was a lot of fun. Where does uh, it, but I do have a reenactor buddy, I think, that owns one. I, I, wow. I think he still has it. Uh, and he may be coming to the air show in March. We'll have to I'll, have to keep in the loop on that. I'm trying to work on that with the old lady. I'm trying yeah, to say maybe we yeah. go to Texas next year. Uh, real, real quick, uh, since we're talking about uh, we do a little show and tell, uh, I do have a few things from the Japanese perspective of World War II, but I only have one thing. Uh, from the Germans, and it's got a really kind of a quick, neat little story to it. Um, there was a guy that I had known years ago who it was his father that served in World War II, and it was him and, and his brother, you know, the, I knew the son. So there's two boys, and uh, they inherit. there was three things that their dad had brought back uh, from basically this German soldier that their dad had killed in action. He, he killed this guy. He took his uh, helmet he took his wool coat and he took his dagger. And unfortunately, the wool coat, and you know, he took the wool coat because he, he needed it. <laughs> it was not a souvenir. He needed the, the jacket. Uh, that had since just, you know, moths. withered away from moths and, and ill care. Uh, and his brother uh, kept the helmet, and the guy that I knew uh, kept the dagger. And uh, I was over at his house for lunch one day, and he, uh, was telling me his, a little bit more about his dad's story and everything. Show me some actual photographs from when he was over there. And he, he brings this dagger out. Uh, and uh, I go to hand it back to him. And he says, uh, no, Jeff, I want you to have that. And I said, oh, geez, I, I, I said, your dad killed the guy wearing this. I can't take this. This is a family heirloom. He said, Jeff, he said, I, you know, I took it out of a box in the spare bedroom in the closet. You know, if I give it to you, more people are going to see it and appreciate it. And, uh, 
how prophetic those words seem now, sharing it on our podcast. But this is it is an essay wow. dagger, wow. not essence. Um, but I can't, I couldn't get the, a good enough angle to show you how pristine it really is. I mean, it was as if this thing had been, you know, under, uh, you know, Felt. perfect humidity, <laughs> you know, its entire life. Um, but I mean, it is, it is absolutely pristine. And uh, I don't even want to know what it would cost if I had to buy it. Um, but I'm proud to have it for sure. So that's my, that's my one and only German artifact from the war. You know, the only German artifact I had, and I gave it to my cousin, but you know, you guys, I've told you guys, my dad's brother was in the 741st tank battalion. He was a Sherman commander and, well, they went at the end of the war, they were going through pills in Czechoslovakia. And you know, the big long Nazi building banners mm -hmm. that were like the length of the entire building. He jerked one off the front of the, the building and threw it in his tank and brought it home. Wow. And we had that up until a few years ago. And then my, my cousin asked me, and Anna's tanker's jacket that he wore in the bulge. And she, she said, Henry, I know how passionate you are about all this history but could i have that jacket of daddy's in the in the nazi banner and i was like of course i mean your father had got those i'm not gonna say no was that thing like 30 feet tall how tall yeah it was it was hugely long i had to take up so much room in his haversack <laughs> <laughs> give me the bedroll yeah really um you know late in your time about an m1 and and it just kind of goes to show how we kind of take for granted our, our rights over here. Cause you know, Jeff has access to them. I got one, Henry. I'm, I'm sure you have access. I do to have one. an M one actually. Yeah. And so it, it, it has to be so difficult. Cause I've, I've had um, one or two living history historians on from over here. And they're telling me they'll go to an event and either they, they can't have firing pens. And even after still after the event, they got taken to the local armory and we just kind of take it for granted that your your no questions asked your fantasy rifle is just something that I was just at an event last weekend where there was a hundred of them in the field that were all privately owned. It's just it just kind of reminds us that we really need to be thankful for you know the some of those rights we have over here that just something is common. Which you know we have legislation that if ever goes through on the Biden administration, not that we get into politics on here, but they were pushing around some paperwork that if it would have went through, I would have to have my M1 registered by them. And I would have to be given permission to display it at living history events. So hopefully that legislation never goes through, but there's, there's people here trying to, trying to push that down our way. Wow. Um, <clears throat> they do, people do have them. Um, I've got a rubber one from band I bought last year. It was actually quite cheap. Um, us in the attic at the moment because I just got nowhere to display it. Yeah, but it's only a rubber one. Um, but I thought about joining a reenactment group um, a couple of years ago, so I went to see a chap um, part of the 101st um, Screaming Eagles uh, reenactment, and the chap gave me a bit of a show and tell, and he's got one. Um, and it, it's like said, so the firing's been pins been taken out, um, and my God, what a piece of oh, it's beautiful. It was stunning. It's um yeah you know and again it's something he has to keep under lock and key in the uk but yeah he, he had one um and he obviously let me hold it as well which was, was pretty cool but again it's not pretty penny yeah um 
but it, it, I think it's a love again I think it's a saving private Ryan thing for that one more so than and say band I think it's because it's just that the pop that comes after it. I know apparently that was put in that actually doesn't happen that sound um that was like that's a Hollywood thing is that right what's that the ping <clears throat> yeah well, I mean, if you guys want to wait a minute, I can go grab mine. I can, I can give you the ping right now. <laughs> oh, right. Phil, hey, Jeff, Henry, fill in for me. I'll be right back. I'll have mine before you have yours. <laughs> well, so late, and I'll tell you the story. <clears throat> um, in 1991, um, a rather large box showed up at my parents' house, and it was an M1 Grand that a guy out in Texas had sent to my father because he had read you know, with the old breed and my dad talked very highly of the M1 Grand, even though he did not, he was not issued one. He did not carry one as a 60 millimeter mortarman, but, but that, that's the one I have. No, I said, I love hearing your stories about your dad. I mean, ever since we've started talking, you know, the stuff that comes out, it's nice to have that. You see, you read, you read it in, in China Marine, obviously as he gets home, but it's nice to sort of, you know, in some of the documentaries, but you, you mm-hmm. can't be chatting to actual some, you know, someone like self mate face to face. Um, you know, when we first started talking, you know, some of the questions. Oh wow, that's awesome, Jeff. This has been incredible to ask you questions about your dad. That some, you know, just from watching those documentaries. Well, and I, you know, <clears throat> I don't know the actual history of that M1, but I, I mean, back in the early nineties, I took it out and shot it quite a bit. Oh wow. I'm such a bad well, fire enthusiast. Actually, have this one here, here. Is, uh, was purchased um, from the uh, civilian marksmanship program CMP. So it's a little bit of a little bit of a Frankenstein. It's 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 a, a Harrington and Richards uh, action, but I do have a Winchester trigger group because uh, it had the the more of the uh, stamped trigger guard without the hole for the you know the winter trigger. So this is the milled uh, trigger guard. There's a uh, I, I think my Opera's International Harvester got some Springfield parts on it. I took the stock completely down and uh, brought it back up with 11 coats of Danish oil and then 11 coats of True Oil. Um, oh, there's your thing. Sally, there's mine's thing. an International Arms Co. one. My top receiver is now Springfield. But, you know, I was going to say, Denix makes an actually a halfway decent reproduction. And before, when I first got into the hobby, I couldn't, I didn't have an M1. It took me probably six years to find one. But some of my reenactor buddies let me use theirs. So at my living history displays, I, this is a Denix replica Thompson. The only problem was it doesn't have the cuts compensator. Well, it's kind of a bastard. Denix messed it up. Um, it has the M1A1 barrel, but it has the M1 uh, top chamber on it so they kind of got the authenticity wrong on it a little bit but i carried this for a while before i actually got my m1 and so i would get the thompson pouches for my marine corps impression and carry this up until i actually got a uh, m1 but yeah this is a denix brand thompson what? don what is that a 15 round mag or a 20 round what is that it's once again this is a, a giant paperweight but it, it's supposed to be a 20 round mag Actually, okay. no, 15 rounds. But it, it has the weight of a real Thompson, and it actually has a quality stock on it. It's just, um, once again, it has the wrong upper receiver for the barrel on it, so they kind of messed up. Because Denix sells this version, and then they have the Chicago typewriter with the longer barrel and the cuts compensator and the grip. And so instead of making two different upper receivers to make it authentic, they kind of messed it up. But yeah, the, my my uh, M1 Garand I actually got at a 
gun show. But once again, it's it's an international arms code because back in the 80s, we had an assault rifle ban. And basically, they could not sell rifles that had a serial number that was issued to the military. And so the International Arms Code basically stamped out brand new upper receivers, popped it on, and now it's a civilian M1 Garand. Which is the only difference is the serial number's on the side and it doesn't say Springfield on it. So sadly, they just cut up a bunch of Springfield receivers, stamped out new ones, and popped them on, and then they were legal. But um, we're we're getting pretty long into it. Um, Henry, you're the most active one out of me and Jeff on here. Uh, do you have anything uh, you need to plug before we wrap it up? No, not not really. I did the the Veterans Breakfast uh, Club show on Veterans Day evening, and since that's over with, the only thing coming up for me would be Leighton, whatever our next We Happy Few Five Hundred Six specific event. Uh, yeah, I think. We've got to start, yeah, start planning that. Um, things of um, from our end, we just did um, a We Happy Few. You know, they're all on on Vimeo. Um, we we did it with the cast of episode five. So we had Ian Bailey, we had Eric Jenderson come on. Um, who else? Uh, you're talking about Band of Brothers episode five. Oh yeah, yeah. But also we did last yeah. time. Um, after obviously we've got to see a Planet Pacific one now. Obviously we've got to start. Looking into that. And where can um, people find those episodes? Uh, they're all on Vimeo uh, previously, so we, we can rent them, uh, so people can rent them. Um, but we're, we're at the moment, we're planning for Bastogne. We've got an event in Bastogne in December. We've asked by the, the Bastogne War Museum to put on um, We Happy Few 506 uh, live, put something on live in person. Have you guys toyed around with the idea of maybe creating a Patreon and putting those behind your paywall for your Patreon members to, to view? Or maybe do a, abbreviated, abbreviated edited versions or something? I, I believe so. I think we, we have looked into it. And I think, uh, you know, the person, uh, Joe, who runs our social media, mentioned um, Vimeo as, as, as I think, the, be the better option. Sure. I don't know. I'm, I'm very terrible with all our stuff. Um, I didn't even know Vimeo existed until a few weeks ago. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not bad. Um, I just help Matt, you know, as he's hosting, uh, possibly prepare questions for him or, or even reach out and, and get family members on, um, which is something we had on, which is what we've done. You know, we, you know, in the past, we've re reunited um, the O'Keefe family with Matthew Hickey was one of the ones where his, you know, Paddy O'Keefe's widow was still with us. So we had the whole family on from uh, the wife the daughters and the grandchildren, which was really nice. Um, obviously, we had on our last one. Um, we had the—I don't know if you're familiar with the Band of Brothers story from from reading the book. Uh, the Barnes family mm -hmm. who hosted Dick Winters and Harry Welsh, but when they were based yep. in Albourn, so um, we connected with those back in in June. Um, we met up with them in Albourn. Um, have you and, read? Not to interrupt you, but since you're on the topic, have you read Hang Tough yet? Yeah, I have. Yeah, I've got. I've read all of Dick Winters' books. Yeah, the Hank Tufts is the diary one, isn't it? Off the top of my head, that's that the one that uh, we had the uh, co-writer on, where they basically took all the letters between him and Annetta, right. and he. There's a lot of Dietta. Yeah, Dietta, and there's a lot of content about that family over there. So mm. for for those you listening who want to learn more about that, I strongly recommend Hank Tuff. That's a great book. Oh, it's fantastic! That's fantastic. And when we met them back in. In June, I started talking to the granddaughter, uh, Jean, 
And she asked where I traveled from. Obviously, with this accent, it's not exactly English. And I said, actually, actually, I live up the road in Gloucestershire in Cheltenham. And and it transpired that her daughter lives around the corner from where I live. So, wow. yeah, um, it's just it's just small. Well, the UK is a small place anyway. But it, you know, if everyone's ever in the UK to swing by Oldbourne, it's it's not much there. But if if you're into your easy company history, it's it's a phenomenal place to see. If I'm honest. Um, but yeah, uh, and obviously, yeah, we've got, yeah, we're looking to look to plan the Pacific one, obviously. And yeah, with the Bastogne event now, we're, we're trying to get every, all our ducks in a row with that. Um, it's, it's looking pretty special at the moment um, with everyone. Obviously, you've got Shane Taylor coming across to Lucy Jean, who plays in Australia, as well as, you know, Tim Matthews, who plays Pencala, who's never been to Bastogne. Um, so it's going to be quite um, nice for him to go across and hopefully get him into see Pencala's uh, a grave because he's never, yeah. obviously, he's never seen it. Um, Got Hubler again. Uh, Peter McCabe plays Hubler. I don't think he's ever been to Bastogne either. So again, we're going to be able to take them to these sites where their characters, sadly, you know, didn't go any further. So yeah, it's it's going to be pretty special. Well, I think we'd be remiss, uh, Jeff, um, if we forgot to bring up that Walking Point was just awarded the best um, inspirational short film by the Franklin Film Fest in Tennessee just over the weekend. So congratulations to R.J. Nevin and company over at. Uh, Black 17 Studios for the continued success of uh, Walking Point, uh, which is how I actually became aware of uh, Vimeo. Was the first time I seen it was on there. And um, so we just want to give a shout out. It's great that uh, Walking Point still continuing to bring home awards at short film festivals and all that good stuff. Well, I'm happy to say, too, that Jeff and I were able to demonstrate for you that, in fact, the sound of the M Block is not Hollywood, but the real deal, Holyfield. And, um, I think, guys, just about going to wrap it up for this episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. Laytons, thank you so much once again for getting up at the ungodly hour, 2 a.m., your time to come sit on the little podcast that could. And uh, thank you so much for what you guys do over at the We the Happy Few 506. And Jeff, Henry, as always, real pleasure. And uh, thank you guys so much. And for the rest of you all, oh, I said we're going to make an announcement. We decided that not only are we going to take off this weekend because of Thanksgiving, and the following weekend, we're going to take off because Jeff had the stellar idea. Why don't we do episode 100 on December 6th, which will uh, all coincide quite nicely. So this is episode 99. The big episode 100 will be airing or being recorded on December 6th. So that means for you guys, the next two weeks, no show. So enjoy your Thanksgiving and all that's good stuff. And for uh, Jeff, Henry, and Layton, we will talk to you all next week. Thank you, guys. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>